some subtle ways and, and some not so subtle ways that, you know, there's always unforeseen consequences, right? When, when transitions happen, when changes happen in the world, the unforeseen consequences can be enormous. And I think a lot of what we're dealing with today are some of the unforeseen consequences of, uh, of the, the, the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment world. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, we're going back in time to June 2022 and Mike Cosper's plenary address at Acton University. Cosper, senior director of podcasts at Christianity Today and host of the hit 2021 podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, spoke on mass loneliness, the loss of virtue, and the allure of charisma. The dramatic social changes of the past century have left our world with a fragile sense of identity. Changes in technology and entertainment have constrained spiritual imaginations and reoriented our collective vision of the good life. These trends pave the way for charismatic leaders in politics, the marketplace, and religious communities to provide meaning through belonging to a group especially one defined by a sense of movement. But movement thinking disincentivizes the slower work of building, be that the building of character or institutions, and the disastrous result has been on display for decades. Our hope for correcting course is found only in embracing a deeper, more rooted vision of virtue, the brevity of life, and a love for the world around us. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. In addition to my duties as the Director of Marketing and Communications, I host uh, the Acton Unwind Roundtable podcast and occasionally the Acton Line podcast. And I have the pleasure tonight of introducing someone else who is a podcast host. Uh, although to say that Mike Cosper and I are both podcast hosts is a little bit like saying that between me and Elon Musk, our net worth is in the billions. <laughs> it's true. Someone's doing a little bit more of the heavy lifting there. Uh, If you haven't heard The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast that uh, Mike produced for Christianity Today, uh, it's an incredible listen, and I highly recommend it to all of you. Mike Cosper is a writer and a podcast producer, senior director of podcasts at Christianity Today. In 2021, he produced The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is a serialized podcast telling the story of a Seattle megachurch's stunning success and then collapse. The podcast served as a venue to explore a variety of questions and issues that trouble the church, including character formation, gender, celebrity, and the distorting power of media. His next series launches later this year. He's the author of five books. Before writing and podcasting full-time, Mike served as a founding staff member and pastor at Sojourn Community Church in, and I guess I say this correct, Louisville, Kentucky. where he helped lead the church from a handful of people in an apartment to a church of more than 4,000 members. Uh, The thing that 
drew me to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and which was a subject in the bonus episode that was just released on Friday, is a conversation about the importance of institutions and how institutions in our life today uh, are not working right. They're not serving their purpose. They're not forming character. And a line from the podcast that I'm, I'm quoting, perhaps somewhat incorrectly, but that stuck with me about the pastor and the rise and fall of Mars Hill that uh, was profiled is that his talent was able to take him far further than his maturity was able to handle. And that's, to me, the incredible importance of institutions informing character, which is one of the reasons why I was incredibly grateful for the podcast series that Mike had produced. Um, so with great pleasure, please join me in welcoming to the stage Mike Cosper. Thanks so much. I, uh... I'm incredibly grateful um, to be here. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of obligatory in a, a lot of these situations to say you're, you know, you're humbled to be on this platform or whatever. Um, I, I'll confess my work on pathological narcissism and charismatic celebrities makes me doubt that it's always true when people say that. Um, for me, I gen generally share Groucho Marx's maxim that I would never join a club that would have a person like myself as a member. Um, but to be standing where I am now in a place where some people, some intellects, some minds who I deeply admire have stood, I, I really do feel humbled. Um, more than that, I feel like somehow I snuck past the guards <laughs> to get here. Um, my only hope is that I don't hear a gong or get the vaudeville hook at some point in the next 40 minutes. Um, as mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a journalist and, and a writer. I mostly focus on faith and culture questions. And so for the most part, what I'm talking about tonight is talking about the church and talking about the church as an institution. But I imagine from the various walks of life that are represented here, um, it'll, be, it'll be easy for you to draw similar connections for yourselves. Um, my own biography, I mean, I kind of experienced all of the highlights of the North American Evangelical Church in the last 40 years. Mega church in the 80s, youth group culture of the 90s, uh, part of the massive church planting boom of the early 2000s, the emergent church, the young restless reformed movement, the multi-site movement, front row for all of this stuff. Um, and if you don't know what any of that is, congratulations, you probably sleep better at night than I do. Um, I want, to ask, I, want, I want to try to answer a few questions that have emerged in my, uh, in, in my mind related to this work over the years. Because I look at the Mars Hill story and I think it's a symptom of a greater plague and it's the reason we wanted to tell the story. Um, why is it so easy for Christians and for people in general to get caught up in a movement like that? What does it have to do with the larger challenges in our culture? What does it have to do with, with secularism, with disenchantment, with the failure of our institutions? And what can the church and other institutions that are working for the common good, what can they do um, to turn the tide? For me, um, the diagnosis that I've, I've settled on and I continue to come back to is an idea that, that Hannah Arendt referred to as mass loneliness. Um, tonight I want to walk through a little bit of, of what I've come to believe that means. And, um, and, and how it affects all of this. Mass loneliness happens, though, when a culture loses touch with their stories. And people lose touch with their stories when they lose touch with the institutions that gave those stories um, and gave them roots. 
You know, there's, there's a thousand accounts for the ways that modernity has kind of reshaped the world and our lives and our spiritual imaginations, um, most of them uh, written by people a lot smarter than me. Um, I'm going to try to offer my, like, the briefest shorthand of this for the way I understand it, because I think it'll be a helpful, a couple helpful point, points of reference. Um, you can imagine a soul, somebody born about 600 years ago. Um, and I think of the world that they inhabited as a world with both roots and with wings. Um, the roots would have been the institutions that provided a sense of meaning and identity in the world. Um, you know, per perhaps it was the church. Um, they were part of a state. The, maybe they were part of an empire. They were certainly part of a, a family. Um, they had a, a vocation, a place in the world, a caste in the world. Um, and some of those were like stories of impoverishment and suffering. And, and, and some of them, you know, we're talking about monarchs. Um, but in any case, there was, a, there was a sense of place. There was a sense of rootedness in the world. And, you know, when you think about the family itself as the most basic institution, the way Yuval Levine talks about it, um, I think that's a, that's a critical way to think about all of this. So if that's the roots, and if that's the source of identity, and if there are fundamental stories about who you are as a person because of your participation in these institutions, part of the fruit that comes out of that is what I would refer to as the wings. And the wings, is, the wings is, are, are sort of the broader, transcendent categories, right, that, that shape our imagination in terms of what's, what's transcendent, what's op, op, uh, ultimately meaningful, what is, what is the good, what is beauty, what, is, what do we think about God and, um, and the, you know, the ultimate end of all things. Um, you know, over the next 600 years or so, uh, to get where we are now, what, what I, the way I sort of envision this is if, if you think of each one of these institutions as like a, a branch uh, of a root that's digging into the soil, what you see is between the Reformation, the scientific revolution, the French and American revolutions, the technological revolutions, um, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, each one of those roots begins to thin and begins to grow brittle. And there's a lot of things about you know the the, the whole modernity project that are that are great, right? Like I'm I'm very much with Gil Pender in uh, um, in Midnight in Paris when he you know he's looking at the the turn of the century and he's saying you know these people don't even have antibiotics, right? Like I'm pro antibiotics, I'm pro air conditioning, um, but I think that. But I think that there are some subtle ways and, and some not so subtle ways that, you know, there's always unforeseen consequences, right? When, when transitions happen, when changes happen in the world, the unforeseen consequences can be enormous. And I think a lot of what we're dealing with today are some of the unforeseen consequences of, uh, of the, the, the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment world. Um, so if you think about it in these terms, you know, you have these roots and you have these wings. And what happens is, you know, at the same time that the institutions are, the connections to the institutions grow thin, um, you start to lose a, a sense of imagination for, for the wings, for the places that the wings can take you, you know. So somebody 600 years ago, they, they see a storm or they look at disease or they see, um, you know, various conditions, the harvest, that sort of thing. And they think in terms of uns unseen forces, you know, blessings, curses, angels, demons. 
you know, and then slowly the scientific revolution comes around, um, sort of post, uh, post-Reformation thought comes around, and you start to have material explanations for each one of these things, you know, air pressure systems and, um, and the like, you know, the voice that you heard in your head and, you know, was once attributed to uh, the voice of demons, Freud comes along and he says, hey, it's just your mother, right? Um, <laughs> So, so what's left then is you've got this world where the bonds to our roots are weak and our capacity for transcendent thinking, our wings, are, they're, they're cut off. And so you live in this very compressed world where, where you, have, you struggle to grow deep. You struggle to think loftily. And it's not, that it's, it's not that it's cut off entirely, right? It's just that any effort at thinking about something larger than yourself, something larger than the material world, something like the stories that give definition to our lives that are attached to each of these institutions, they're always contested. And they're contested by the way this sort of social imaginary, if you will, has reshaped uh, the way that we think. Um, because there's lack of deep grounding and because there's this sort of ceiling on the other, um, what's left is ourselves and the people around us. And, and that's how you get to this phenomenon that Hannah Arendt refers to as mass loneliness. She says loneliness isn't solitude. And, and we'll talk about solitude in a little bit because I, I think solitude actually should help us in a season like this. But mass loneliness actually happens in a society where we're together, but we have no shared stories. We have no shared sense of meaning and, and purpose. Everyone's kind of suspended in this compressed space trying to make sense of who we are and of what we're supposed to do in the world. And so the result of mass loneliness is this incredible sort of existential anxiety. And I think that's the starting point of where you begin to see uh, so, many, so many challenges that we face in the world today, whether it's sort of ex- expressive individualism, right? Like all of the different ways people are looking for identity in the world. When you, when you look at a lot of what's happening with sexuality and gender, um, it's a fascinating thing to think about if you think about a world without roots and wings. You know, some of the sort of gender identity stuff that you see, some of the, 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 the transitioning stuff that you see, it's almost like these are the only ways to sort of stretch beyond the material world that are accepted in this compressed reality. So that's one route. You look for meaning in yourself. You look for meaning in, in the expression of, an, uh, of a particular identity. Um, but I think there's a couple of other ways um, that, you know, that, that come about and, and make some sense of, of other things that we're seeing, sort of two other paths. Um, and to, to look at those other paths, I want to I wanna look at two lives in particular. One of, them is, is a, one of them is a story of somebody who went looking for wings, right? They were looking for the transcendent uh, experience. They were looking for sort of God and meaning and all of that. Um, but they did so very deliberately detached from any kind of root. Um, the other one chose a, a path of rootedness. In fact, he, he lashed himself to what's maybe the most powerful formative institution in, that's, that's still around these days other than the military. And what he found was an experience, and what I think you see in his life is an experience um, kind of like what Matthew Crawford has described as a cultural jig, right? It, an institution is a jig. It's, a, it's, it's something that guides you and forms you and shapes you into certain ways of thinking and certain patterns of behavior. 
Um, one other thing I want to say before we look at these stories, too, is that when, when you see them and when you see these lives unfold, um, and when you look at our modern world as a whole, you, you start to see that the whole idea of virtue begins to get really weak as well. Because virtue only makes sense in a world with roots. Virtue only makes sense in the context of a life that's connected to things like community, family, uh, the church, all of this. Because virtue calls you to live outside of yourself. Virtue calls you, you to sacrifice on behalf of others, to be generous on behalf of others. Even the way, you know, in the classical way that sort of the Greeks talked about, you know, certain kinds of ambition or greatness of soul is the language they're using a lot these days around um, kind of the, the Aristotelian ethic of virtue. The, even doing great things in that sense was about doing great things for the, the city, for the people, for the community that you were a part of. Well, if you live in this compressed world and all you have is yourself, all you have is your own identity as a source of meaning, then virtue starts to make no sense. Because who are you sacrificing for? Who are you generous for? Um, ultimately, ultimately, virtue should, would end up being in service of meaning and purpose, which makes it about yourself. And so, so virtue becomes... This thing that you see all the time now, where what is virtuous is to affirm other people's expressions of themselves. I think one place this poverty of virtue has become particularly evident in the last few months, um, and, and in the way the words courage and bravery are employed today, are in service of that kind of self-expression. Um, I think another place that we've seen it now, and it's a tragic example, an, an awful demonstration, is in Uvalde, Texas. You know, I want to caveat this because there's still th some things that we don't know, but every day, every new revelation out of the story of what happened in that school shooting is a story about the poverty of courage. A moment came for police officers to act, to be self-sacrificial in service of others, and it seems their, their courage failed. I mean, just yesterday a story came out that said that the police were in the school and at the door within three minutes, and the doors to the classrooms were unlocked. Currently, right now, if you, you know, there's an, there's an attorney that's been hired. Vice did a report um, about an attorney that was, that's been hired to, to try to help the officers and the police department prevent uh, any, any digital records coming out of what took place, body cam footage, audio calls, text messages. And, you know, as, they, as, as this attorney talked about these concerns, um, he said, you know, the, the danger is that it would show uh, it might embarrass these officers and it would cause emotional distress if this stuff ever came out. And, I, and you know, the first thing I thought is, uh, you know, I imagine the parents and siblings of 21 Souls would like to have a word with them about emotional distress. Um, but second, you see in this the vapid nature of psychological language in a world without roots and wings. With nowhere to anchor virtue, we're often left to nothing to appeal to but self-interest. And self-interest doesn't allow us to assess a moment like that and say, I failed. We don't have a larger vision of courage and virtue to point to. And it takes nothing away from their personal responsibility to say, quite simply, that the institutions failed them too. Because they didn't have a jig. They didn't have a vision. They didn't have uh, the... the, the um, they, they didn't have the, the, the institutional vision to understand what their, what their responsibility was at the moment. And again, I don't think that makes an excuse. I would hope that as human beings made in the image of God, something would come from all of us to respond to those moments. But we don't know, 
right? You don't know until you're in the midst of it. And I want to say that and recognize the need for humility. So for those who are looking for meaning then, if you, if you want to get beyond this sort of compressed world where, where you don't have a transcendent category and you don't have a category for roots, um, I think what you end up seeing is you end up seeing this phenomenon of seekers. I mean, this was big language in the 1990s. I think it's actually still pretty helpful to, to imagine people who are looking at the world and saying, I don't have a sense of place. I don't have a sense of meaning. I'm going to go looking for it. Um, and so to trace these, the, the idea out, so I think there are people who do this turning to roots in search of transcendence, and people who go looking for transcendence and don't want to be encumbered by roots. And so we'll look at two lives. The, the first person, he was born in 1915, son of artists, he was living in France, his family's kind of cosmopolitan, they're traveling around quite a bit. Um, they moved to, to the United States shortly after, you know, with, within a few years of his birth, or a few months of his birth. Um, and then in 1921, he has a, a tragedy. His mother dies. Um, he ends up, his father, after the war, moves back overseas. He's a painter. Um, this, this person, he's, he's in and out of uh, boarding schools, and he's, he's a troubled kid, and he just wants to be with his dad. And so there's this back and forth. There's some interesting letters about all of this. Then when he's 16, in 1931, his father dies as well of a brain tumor. Um, he goes to college, first couple of years in college. He, you know, seems pretty evident he's trying to drink and party away his sorrows. Um, he actually gets a girl pregnant. He never meets that child. Um, and then he ends up in, in New York City, uh, transfer schools in 1935. Uh, and he goes to Columbia. And it's there where this seeking really begins. And, you know, he's interested in religion and he's interested in world religion. And there's, there's a lot that's happening at that moment. He eventually meets and befriends a Hindu monk and kind of becomes enamored with this, uh, with this mystic spirituality. And, and one of the most interesting moments in this guy's life, you know, he's talking to this guy about his, his spirituality. He wants to understand it. He wants to go deeper in it. And the guy basically says, well, you're from this Christian tradition. Do you, do you understand where you came from? And he turns him back and he says, why don't you go, uh, go back to your sources? You should read Augustine. You should read Thomas Akempis. And he does. And it lights his imagination on fire. And so he's reading more and more in Catholic spirituality. And then late one night, he's reading Gerard Manley Hopkins. And he has this kind of Damascus Road experience. And he rushes down the street to uh, a church. And he bangs on the door and he asks for the priest. And when the priest comes out, uh, or, or when he meets the priest coming back, um, he says to him, hey, I, I think I want to be Catholic. I think I'm ready, I think I'm ready to convert. And that, if you haven't solved the riddle, that's, that was actually Thomas Merton, a 20th century Trappist monk who, who authored probably one of the most important spiritual biographies of, of the era, the Seventh Story Mountain. And, you know, a lot of people, I mean, commonly associate Merton with sort of political radicalism and the things that came later in his life. Um, but I actually want to talk tonight about Merton the conservative. Merton as somebody who did lash himself to an institution. And if that sent a chill up your spine, stay with me for a minute. Um, we'll get to that. Um, in fact, I, a friend of mine, he's a, he's a poet and he's a Merton scholar and he regularly talks about Merton's life and his, his poetry. And he says, you know, whenever he does workshops with people and working through this stuff, he says there's always this moment where people who've come in and they're interested in the interfaith dialogues and stuff that came later with Merton, where he always has to basically hit the brakes and go, y'all know he was Catholic and like he never gave that up, right? <laughs> um, in fact, um, 
In fact, there's a really interesting moment in, in Merton's life that, that there's this tape. He, he would lecture novices on spirituality. And there's this tape that was recorded as some of the, uh, you know, some of, some of Vatican II was being published and being passed down and discussed at the monastery. And there's, the, there's this great tape where he's talking to these guys and he's going, you know, I, I don't know what to make of all this. You know, I mean, this whole worship in the vernacular thing, you know, what are we going to do about the Hail Mary? You know, are we just going to say, hey, Mary, gee, you're swell. You're not like all those other girls. <laughs> So he had this deep commitment, and, and we'll return to that in a moment. Um, the other character we'll look like was born shortly after Merton. He was born in 1922 to French-Canadian parents. Um, his mother was a devout Catholic. His father was a devout drunk. Um, when he was nine, his older brother died. And, um, or I'm sorry, when he was four, his older brother died. And he was kind of always haunted by that experience. In fact, when he wrote about it, he told this story of, of his brother having this sort of beatific vision on his deathbed and, and the nuns that were with him um, essentially saying he's a saint, you know, after that. Um, he shows up at Columbia University in 1940. He, he and Merton kind of pass like ships in the night. In his case, he, he came as an athlete. He came as a football player. But uh, a year in, in or during that first year, uh, he breaks his leg. And I think about this moment in his life a lot. Because there, you know, he's, he's a devoted athlete. He loves it. He was good at it in high school. He, you know, he played a ton of sports. He was, a, he was like an all-state wrestler, I believe. Um, and so suddenly this guy who has this outlet for all this sort of aggressive, youthful energy, um, he's got his leg broken. And he's got a lot of time on his hands. And there are few things in this world more dangerous than a young man uh, with a lot of time on his hands, right? Um, he drops out of Columbia shortly after this. And he stays in New York and he starts linking up with some friends that are going to profoundly influence him in the years to come. He, briefly in the Merchant Marines, then in the Navy, very quickly kicked out of the Navy because he didn't adjust well. Some interesting theories as to what was going on there. But then in the next few years, he, he falls in with these friends, writers, poets, uh, misfits. Um, and mo a lot of these guys fell out of the military. This was, this was the lost generation was how some of these folks were referred to. Um, and then he meets this one friend in particular, um, a, a guy who came to New York from Denver, grew up on Skid Row, uh, very rough background. And this guy uh, is incredibly charismatic and becomes his muse. And of course, I'm talking about Jack Kerouac and the moment he meets Neil Cassidy. And the two of them head off on the road together. Um, you know, when you read Kerouac talking about Neil Cassidy, it's, it's very romantic, and it's very romanticized, this life. He says, the only ones for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. Later in the same book, he is talking about him, and in, in, in On the Road, he renames him Dean Moriarty, and he says, So in America, the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to nobody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. I think of Dean Moriarty. I think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. I think of Dean Moriarty. And... It's easy to get caught up in Kerouac's lyricism about Neil Cassidy. 
But if you take even a cursory look at this guy and what he actually did with his life, the man's a sociopath, right? He's in and out of jail for, for drugs, for theft, for sleeping with underage girls. Um, it's, a, it's a horrific life this guy lived. But he became the muse not only of Kerouac, but of you know, the, the mad-to-live uh, beat generation becomes kind of the, the, the elder brothers to the 60s youth movement, the anti-war movement, the, the sexual revolution. And, you know, as those movements take off, Kerouac and Cassidy's lives fall apart. Cassidy dies. Uh, it's not sure. He dies in Mexico. It's not clear if he died of exposure because uh, he passed out on a railroad track. It's not clear. Could have been a drug overdose. Could have been heart. Can, you know, the guy just beat his, his body up with drugs for his entire life. Kerouac dies only about a year, year and a half later. And he dies. Uh, he'd been an alcoholic for many, many years. And um, so, you know, 1969, his, his liver ruptures. He was 47 years old. And he essentially dies drowning in his own blood. And these are stories, the stories of these characters. There's, there's a beauty to them because they're on this search. They're on this quest looking for meaning and purpose. But man, they've got nothing to root themselves. They've got no jig. They've got nothing to form character for them. And the end of their stories is tragic. Merton, of course, dies shortly after that uh, as well. He dies of a freak accident in Thailand. And what's interesting about comparing these two lives is they do both represent the, the tensions of living in a compressed world without roots and wings. Kerouac is probably the, the, for, the forebearer of this whole expressive individualism. He's just out on the road. He's looking for meaning. But if you read Merton's uh, journals in particular, you see all those tensions are in them. In fact, his friends all laughed when he said he wanted to become a priest because they knew how much he liked girls. He had this conflicting attraction to, to people as an extrovert and to solitude. In his writing and his public witness, he's, he is understood as a radical, but I think people do misunderstand the degree to which the institution of, of being a monk, of being at the Abbey of Gethsemane, constrained those impulses. He wrestled with his ego. When he came to the monastery, he wanted to give up writing, but his abbot was the one who sent him back to writing. Um, when he was writing about the civil rights movement, his arguments in favor of it were arguments from the perspective of the importance of virtue. When he wrote about interfaith dialogue, he wrote, yes, because he had this fascination with contemplative spirituality, and he always had. But also, he wrote as somebody trying to take seriously the mandate for inter interfaith dialogue from Vatican II. Um, he expressed that ambiguity about those prayers. There was this, there was this tension. He was drawn to the solitary life. He was, he was drawn to the institution, and he wrestled with being drawn to the world. And yet the story again and again takes him back to his commitment to that place. Probably the most significant moment of temptation for him comes in 1966. He had back surgery in Louisville. And by the way, you said Louisville, great. I have a friend who uh, actually says the way you pronounce Louisville, you have to say it like you've got a Louisville slugger stuck in your mouth. You know, Louisville, you kind of give up on all those vowels. Okay, 1966. He says uh, he falls in love with the nurse while he's in Louisville for back surgery. And he carries on an affair with her for several months. But, you know, he's kind of called out for this. A friend, you know, a friend in the monastery finds out. 
and he confesses it. And he has this crossroads. Does he stay? Does he go? There's so much in the world for him. He has all these friends. He's this sort of literary hero by this point. And he returns to the monastery. He commits to breaking off the relationship. And it's unclear if he did that perfectly, but he ultimately did uh, stay in the monastery. I think if you read him in good faith and you look at the best parts of his legacy, you can understand that this was somebody who saw the constraints of the institution as a gift that would protect him from the worst parts of himself. And it's the place, uh, it's the part of his work that I would love to see get more emphasis uh, than, than certain other aspects that get a lot more. Um, for me now, like I've followed over the last number of years these, these crises of evangelicalism in the church and in the church growth movement and in particular. And there are two critical ways that I think Merton and Kerouac's life shed light on that crisis. On Merton, I think we somebody who was made more virtuous by the institution that he had committed himself to. Um, I think uh, by contrast, if you look at the story of evangelicalism, um, you see something that is akin to the spirit of Kerouac. You see, um, you see organizations inside the evangelical movement, especially in the late 1990s, that, that show contempt for the constraints that, in, that institutions posed on them. Um, they looked at denominations. You had people who were interested in, in church planning and church growth, and they looked at denominations and they said, you know, there's this whole rigmarole, the educational process, the vetting process, uh, ordination. That just seems to be getting in the way of, of planting and growing and moving. Let's just throw that out. We'll have these loose affiliated networks. And when we see a guy we meet and we like, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll give him money and he'll go plant. And it was really successful for a time. But there was a collapse about 15 years later. And the story of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill is one example of many, many others. And I'm sure some of you in the room could probably join me and we could name a couple dozen. Um, what, what was exciting about that what was exciting about that experience, though, was the feeling that people had that, that was the experience of movement. And, and just to say this briefly about movements, right? We hear a lot about movements. We're going to start a movement for this and a movement for that. But I think when we hear the word movement, we need to ask ourselves, is this a movement that's rooted in institutions, that's rooted in something that's bigger, that's rooted in some kind of tradition? Or is this a movement that's borrowing the capital that comes with the language of an institution and that's actually harnessing the anxious energy of people who don't know who they are and who are dying for, dying, you know, David Foster Wallace's quote, that we're all dying to give ourselves away to something. There are predatory leaders, predatory people, predatory organizations that are going to look at that energy and go, we can leverage that for power, for money, and for influence. And when those fall apart, because they haven't rooted people in a story that's bigger than themselves or bigger than the leader that they're following, it is crushing to people's souls. And that's what we saw again and again in the story of Mars Hill. That's what you see in Jack Kerouac at the end of his life, dying such a horrific and tragic death. I want to close by just looking at three specific ideas that if, if I were going to wave a magic wand and think about Christian institutions and think about how do we reconnect with people in our world that are struggling, that are suffering, that are feeling that compression and that feeling that mass loneliness and longing for something that's meaningful. Um, 
The first is simply, I, I think we should renew our commitment to a practice like silence, to a practice like solitude. One of my favorite experiences, a few couple of years ago, I'm in a coffee shop and I see this kid come in, seminary student, I believe. Um, he comes in, he orders a latte, he sits down. Um, he's, he's got this giant John Frame systematic theology to sit there and read. And I swear I'm not making this up. He sits there for about 10 minutes, posing the book and the latte to get his Instagram shot. Posing, posing, posing. And it was hilarious to watch. And so he, he finally gets his shot. He sits down. He's drinking his coffee. Well, the whole time I'm narrating this in text to my wife because <laughs> I think it's amazing. And then no joke, she texts me back a screenshot of his photo on Instagram. She'd hunted it down. And I wrote back, I was like, you're like Batman. <laughs> but this is what we live for. This is how spirituality is practiced. It's practiced to display and that movement thinking that wants to harness people's energy for, for causes that are ultimately destructive, they live on display. They live on putting yourself out there to celebrate. You know, Jesus makes it, makes it pretty simple when he says to us, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. We lose something when we keep the door to our spiritual hearts open and display it to others. Second thing, I think the second thing that, that Christian churches and institutions need to do is we need to re resist screwing up our missions by being seduced by the success of charismatic movements. I think, um, you know, when we think in terms of church leadership, you know, you can look around and you can see, you know, churches where guys are driving Lamborghinis on the stage. There's a, a famous story of a guy, he had a marriage book and he and his wife did a bed in on the roof of the house where for 24 hours they, they had a camera going and they were answering marriage questions. I mean, they got sun poisoning out of the whole thing. It was a really bad deal. Um, but again, it's this, it's this idea of how do we create excitement? How do we create energy? How do we stir people up? And it doesn't seem to produce anything that lasts. Where, where I just genuinely wonder, what would it be like if we pushed in our churches for people to just be a whole lot quieter and to spend a whole lot more time? Hannah Arendt was, was really critical on this. She says, solitude is one of the keys for getting out of loneliness. Because when you're in solitude, you're alone with yourself and you might actually find out, what do I think? Who am I? What do I ultimately care about? Finally, the, the thing that I think is maybe the most critical piece of all of this is that we as Christians need a renewal of the tragic sense of life. Um, this is a, a sensibility, it's a, it's a Catholic contemplative sensibility that I just absolutely love. And it's also a deeply biblical sensibility. You know, when you think about the roots of the Judeo-Christian story, you have, you know, roots in Israel, this, this idea that we're a people who wrestle with God. That's not a victorious life, right? Like, that's a life of struggle and of, of intimacy at the same time. The New Testament's a story of a God who took on flesh and who suffered and it's a story you read in the Gospels and you see the, 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 you know, the Apostle Peter, he follows Jesus all of his life. He sees him in his glory on Mount Tabor, on, on, the, trans, on the Transfiguration. And his response to that glory is, can I build tents? Can I build tabernacles? Can we just stay here? But Jesus marches on to Jerusalem and he doesn't get it. He can't comprehend that something dark is coming. And when Jesus is handed over and when he's punished and when he's going to die... Peter's denying him. 
And then you fast forward to his restoration from ministry. And what does Jesus tell him? He tells him, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die like I did. You're going to be bound and taken places you don't want to go. Movement thinking draws us in with promises of glory. And we should celebrate experiences of glory. But we need to resist the temptation to tell people that that's what the Christian life is about. Because really the Christian life is about how do we endure suffering together. Last little story I'll share. I, I, when I was a worship pastor in a church, I remember this one Sunday in particular that, that I'll never forget. I'm, sitting on the st- or I'm standing on the stage helping to lead the service, and I look out, and there's three people in the, like the third row. And on the aisle, there's a young woman, and she had a four-month-old baby and a giant tumor in her stomach. And she was dying. She would pass away within about a year. A few seats away from her, some dear friends of ours, um, she was a surgeon. She's an elite surgeon in the city. And she lost two patients that week. She never lost patients. She lost two patients that week. And then a few seats away from her was a, was a woman. Her name was Victory. She'd been baptized maybe a week before. She's about 47, 48 years old. And since she was 15 years old, she'd been working in strip clubs. And she'd been part of, you know, trafficked. And she'd gotten out of it. And I'm sitting there looking at them, and, and we happened at the moment I saw them to be praying through a prayer of lament. And I thought to myself, what if we hadn't given space for sorrow that morning? What if we hadn't given space to say the world isn't what it's supposed to be, and we can't make it what we think it's supposed to be? And I don't say that to pat myself on the back, because you know what? The church was really good at that for a really long time. And I think we've lost sight of that because of this eagerness for grandiosity. So that's where my prayers have turned. I'm praying that we see renewal in those spaces in the church, that we see the ground soften for people to find roots again in the stories and in the institutions that form them, rather than being drawn away by charisma and and excitement and grandiosity. That they'd find hope and character that could make them better neighbors, better faithful witnesses, and to live with greater compassion. And that in that witness, they'd show the world that what it's truly like to live with wings. Thank you all very much. Great. Thank you very much for that, Mike. Um, you evoke Hannah Arendt and remind me of my favorite quote from Hannah Arendt that I get secondhand from uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, that every generation civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. Uh, one of the questions, and again, I want to remind people, we're taking questions over Slido, so please, um, if you have a question uh, or a comment that you'd like to phrase in the form of a question, uh, please submit it over Slido there. Um, so civilization, we forget that civilization is not just a noun, it's a verb, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the questions uh, from the audience, so for those who have been raised without roots, I think civilization is, you know, the verb civilization is one of the things yeah. that give us roots. How do you help them grow later in life if they have been robbed from that formative experience early on in their life? Yeah. I think it's a great question. I don't know that I have a great answer. Um, I think what we have to, so I think where this all starts, right? Like renewal is going to start in, um, around these questions in terms of formation in the pursuit of wisdom. Um, 
it, and that includes wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom for those of us who do have roots in those institutions. That's one of the things, you know, in pastoring for, for 15 years, when I would meet and talk with young people, the thing they longed for more than anything was, is, is there somebody here who can mentor me? Is there an older, I just need an older Christian that I can talk to. You know, I think if there's like, I think if there's like a larger community, I'm, I was like, don't say movement, don't say movement. <laughs> if there's like a larger community that could form um, with, this, with this sort of vision and commitment, it might be 15, 20 years of like suffering, failing, figure th figuring things out. And then, and, but then building a community and building a, a, a witness, like a, announcing a witness for the church or, or living out a witness for the church, where it's just very clear, man, that's a community where, where I can go with, with questions. I can be mentored. I can grow. And in particular, I know, I know where to turn when I suffer. Um, and I think that's maybe the most critical thing. The, the thing I would say, too, is the church needs to be the people that show up at, at hospital, uh, hospital bedsides and at funerals. Um, and, man, what's, what's remarkable in doing the research for the Mars Hill podcast, looking at all these megachurch pastor stories and stuff, I, I don't know of very many of the guys who pastored in those big contexts like that and fell who ever did funerals or went to hospital visits. Um, a lot of them just stayed detached from the community altogether. In the concept of, you talked about celebrity, mm -hmm. um, and even in, in what you were just talking about there in that kind of formation, it, it's shaping people to be, in the work of institutions, um, to be, make them better people through the course of those, uh, being involved with those institutions. The message we hear so often now is not about that, that you should change yourself, you should work to better yourself. It is about authenticity as kind of the highest form of virtue now. Right. Um, I think we, uh, tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, I think we see that as well in um, some of the charismatic leaders that you have highlighted. Mm -hmm. um, that they are, the quote that I uh, might have butchered in the beginning, but nonetheless stuck with me from mm -hmm. the rise and fall of Mars Hill, um, that his talent was able to take Mark mm -hmm. Driscoll further than his maturity was able to handle. Uh, that lack of maturity and formation being so important there. What, what is... How should the church grapple with the concept of celebrity and celebrity yeah. pastors? Um, there are examples of them in every denomination. Is celebrity inherently problematic? It, it, so, yes, in this sense. Celebrity is problematic in that um, someone with a massive platform, uh, d like we have no reason to trust anybody just because they have a massive platform or because of what they've shown us via you know, any form of media. That was the power of the Mars Hill story, and it's, and it's a template that's been followed again and again, right? That Mark was, Mark was a character that behind closed doors, everybody kind of knew, this guy's arrogant, he's angry, he lashes out at people. He had the success he had because he had an amazing media team who had the, the instincts to know, how do we package this so that it's more appetizing for people. And I think you see that all the time. I mean, that's the nature. Andy Crouch talks about this a lot. Like, the whole idea of media is that, is that there's, there's an intermediary thing happening that actually separates us from, person, from, from a person. So the language of authenticity um, has, we, we should never attach the language of authenticity to somebody that we're watching on a screen. Authenticity is about shared life. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't learn from people who are, you know, 
producing podcasts and whatnot. But it, it means that you shouldn't trust them, right, with your soul. The people you trust with your soul and devote your life to in, should be happening in community. It should be reciprocal. Um, and in community, it's hard to hide. And again, it's one of the reasons why in a lot of these celebrity pastor stories, you see people who didn't live in community, who avoided it. Well, yeah, you think that's how people, when they can't find that sense of community close to themselves, that they start looking at for it in places much larger than themselves, right? And I think yeah. of that in our, our form of politics now, that so much of it is seeking to be a part of something larger than themselves. Right. So you get these pseudo-religious movements that aren't truly religious in nature, but nonetheless, they are acting to fill that, you know, we're homo religioso. There's a desire to act religiously, and if we don't find it in religion, we'll find it someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's like if there's no story, right? Like, again, so the idea of, to me of the way institutions shape stories, it's like if I know I'm part of a church or even family, if I know I'm part of a family, I think about this a lot because my family's full of these stories of like, you know, this, this immigrant family that came here and they were evangelized by, you know, early Wesleyans, blah, blah, blah. You have this sense of like you're part of something that's, that's a lot larger than yourself. Um, but we just live in a time as, as things sort of, as people become more and more isolated, they have no sense of that. And that goes for the church, that goes for academic institutions, it goes for certain vocations. You know, we're obsessed with the new. I mean, the Theranos story, my goodness, what a perfect example of, of that. What, like, what universe does it make sense to start investing billions of dollars in a 19-year-old Stanford dropout, right? Um, but we so want to believe we've found that spark of genius and we're going to change the world that people then begin to sort of against their better judgment or, you know, or they, you know, aren't talks about this, like the, just the fact that we suspend our judgment because we want to believe the story we're being told. Wait, because it promises a sense of deliverance too, right. right? You know, it's disease is so terrible and here's this, just one little drop of blood is all we need to be able to potentially solve all these problems. For That's you. right. Yeah. A, a question from the audience. Um, to what extent may individual self-expression be a coping mechanism when the narratives of rooted communities turn toxic rather than itself being the problem? Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think so therapy is really interesting to me. Psychotherapy is really interesting to me here. It's, it's one of the things if I'd had another hour, I'd, I'd get into. But one of the things you see is that when people suffer, you know, like genuine sort of trauma, traumatic experiences, oftentimes there's two things um, a psychotherapist needs to do to help somebody with PTSD. One is there are various sort of body therapy things that happen now. There's this thing called EMDR. It's a really fascinating thing because trauma rewires the brain and, and connects things backwards and all this kind of stuff. EMDR is this, this physical thing that helps to fix that. But the other thing they need is a story. Um, most, most recovery uh, stories in therapy are about people who find a story that makes sense of their suffering. Um, and so I, I think there's... I, I mean, I'm, in the psychotherapy world, there are definitely ways people do that without, you know, rooting it in faith or family or whatever it may be. Um, and, and so I think there's some effectiveness to it. I would just question whether that is sustainable, you know, for a culture. I want to ask you a question that I got from listening to the bonus episode that you released last Friday. Um, there's this very interesting uh, 
piece of tape that you play in there from Mark Driscoll, <laughs> where he goes in front of, was it a, a seminary, I think it was? Yeah, it was um, a Southeastern Seminary. And he basically boasts that, you know, like his most pastoring experience that he had had was like, as, I think as a campus pastor. And, you know, it was like, I haven't gone to Bible college. I haven't gone to seminary. I haven't been an associate pastor at a church. I haven't been a lead pastor at a church. So I figured the best thing that I could do is go and I could start my own. Mm -hmm. And this, we seem to have this session in modern society with anti-qualification. Mm. Um, the people who are not, have not gone through the process of credentializing, and you know, there are problems with credentializing and all sure. of that in these institutions, uh, but this obsession also with outsiderism. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, in your opinion, what do you think is driving people towards an attraction mm -hmm. with that, rather than going to the person who's clearly learned, they have studied at a seminary, they, mm -hmm. they have spent time understanding this stuff, and to go with the person who says, you know, in, in effect, I don't know what I'm talking about, so please come yeah. listen to me. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to that authenticity question, right? Like that, we're attracted to the, so, so Yuval Levine talks about this um, a lot, where part of what an institution does that people perceive negatively is it becomes its own kind of mediation as well. Um, and, and so when somebody says, look, I'm going to bypass this, and I'm going to give you the real thing, and I'm the straight dope, and it's me, and, you know, in politics, it's like all these corrupt people in Washington, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, that was one of the things that was, I'm fascinated with with the 2008 presidential campaign is that McCain and Obama both ran as, quote, unquote, outsiders. And that became kind of a template for every presidential election since. Everybody's an outsider. I'm a maverick. You know, Ted Cruz in 2016 said, this is the year of the maverick. It's me, you know, Harvard-educated lawyer, and Bernie Sanders, who's been in the Senate since, you know, 1850 or whatever, right? <clears throat> and so it's that, it's that sort of a obsession with this idea that, like, somebody who's outside gives us the real thing. And that's, again, that's just the illusion of, of sort of media, the illusion of displayed life. Um, I would also say, I mean, I think we have, you could give another whole talk about, well, how have the institutions themselves failed and betrayed trust? And that's a big part of the story, too. And so that's one of the reasons, that's the tension of people looking outside, wanting the maverick. Another question from our audience. Uh, how do you do solitude? Mm. Where do you start and how can one encourage people to practice it? Yeah, that's a, man, that's an awesome question. Um, let me just recommend a book, actually. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton has a book called um, uh, An Introduction to Silence and Solitude. Um, and what she essentially says is, like, this is not a fancy practice. This is nothing to think, you know, because I think people hear this and they think, okay, I've got to get a week away, find a monastery that's going to take me in the guest house or whatever. And like, man, if you get there, that's great. Um, but most of us need like a morning, right? Like once a week, uh, twice a week, three, four hours where we're just going to say, you know what? I'm going to get up early. I'm going to be alone. Maybe, maybe you have a journal. Maybe you have scripture. You know, maybe it's music. Whatever it may be, but into a place where you can kind of get alone to yourself and say, what's happening inside me right now? And you know what? It's really terrifying. And you understand why people don't want to do it when you start to step into it. But there's sort of a valley, you know, it's like Dante's Inferno. You got, the only way out is through it. Um, we have to kind of enter those, those spaces in our lives where we understand what's happening, the, the, the anxious thoughts, et cetera, um, because God meets us there. Uh, another question we just got from our audience. Uh, I am from Uvalde. Uh, in the wake of sorrow, 
It is easy to develop a numbness to the pain of both ourselves and others. How do we develop true empathy in suffering? Hmm. Yeah, man, what a, gosh, what a hard question. I mean, that story is so, breaks your heart. Um, I'd say a couple of thoughts on that. One is, I remember hearing this a few years ago, Russ Moore talked about it. Um, somebody asked him a similar question, actually. I believe it was Russ Moore. And his answer was, was twofold. One was, you, you just can't consume media all the time because it overwhelms you with these, you know, cable news like lives on like, what's the worst thing that happened today? Okay, let's tell all five of those stories over and over again. Um, we need some space from those things. And, and again, that's one of the things solitude offers is to go, okay, what is happening inside me? Um, because I think that relieves the numbness to actually give the time for ourselves, our own thoughts to emerge. Um, and the second thing that, I, that Russ talked about that I think is great is he says, you gotta read fiction. Um, read novels, get inside the heads of characters. Um, there's nothing like a great story that, that cultivates empathy and helps you pay attention to the humanity of the people around you. Part of that's just like, like empathy comes from imagination, right? You have to be able to imagine life in other people's, uh, other people's worlds. And there's, you know, there's most of our entertainment complex is not engaging us at the imagination. They're, you know, they're giving us skills. So skills are fine, you know, once a week. <laughs> a full diet of them, probably not problematical, or at yeah. least uh, so my doctor says. Uh, many millennials and Gen Zers are abandoning Christianity. What are the most important things young people who love the church should do to reverse this trend? I think we should be asking what they don't like. Not because we want to cater, right? Like you don't. In fact, I would say like one of the messages, one of the things that fascinates me, look at the church growth phenomena starting in the late 60s, like around the era of like Calvary Chapel and when the church culture begins to really change. The message you hear over and over again as a new movement arises is we're starting the church movement for the outsider, right? It's like, so the outsiders in the Jesus people movement, the outsiders in the, uh, you know, the, the baby boomers that are coming into Willow Creek and Saddleback in the early 1980s, um, the outside, like we planted a church that was like the outsiders, the, you know, the indie rock kids and punk kids who couldn't show up at other churches. Um, so there's something about that that doesn't work. Um, I think what, what, what I'm hearing and what I see is there's a longing for a kind of stability and a longing for a sense of like, can, we, can I belong to some, something that's a little bigger than me? And I think one of the things we have to think about as well with this is if you look at like, you look at the data on this stuff, there's always some alarmism around this. Everybody's leaving the church. But there's also this cyclical thing where you do have a, a wave of people who leave the church and come back. Um, and that's been happening since the, the 80s as well. Um, so what, what I'm interested in is how can the church be a stable place where people hear the message, they struggle with it, they leave for a time. And it, again, like the Peter story, right? Like Peter experiences glory, um, he, he struggles with it, he denies his faith, and yet Jesus, when the time comes, he returns and he understands suffering differently. He understands the gospel in a deeper way. Um, that's that's going to be the arc. And I think I think our own anxiety about how do we hang on to our kids, how do we hang on to the, the next generation, I think we have to resist a little bit letting that be the thing that dictates how we do church together. 
Do you think it's also finding a balance too? So like for the kids that you mentioned, the punk kids who didn't feel they could yeah. show up in other places, um, you reminded me very uh, briefly the, a story of my alma mater, a little liberal arts school in central Illinois, um, that had an uprising in one of their choirs because the objection was from the students, well, you're not letting us express our individuality. <laughs> It's a choir. It's a choir. <laughs> um, and on one hand, you, you need those, you know, formative institutions that do, that are communal, mm -hmm. um, but that still rep recognize our individuality, um, and to borrow from my friend Michael, of embodied, embedded beings, that we are mm -hmm. individuals, um, but also that submit ourselves to a collective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and again, like, that's where, I mean, it's the same thing with the church, right? Like, when people are like, well, I want, it, I want it to feel more comfortable for me. I want it to, you know, what they're often sort of indirectly saying is, I want to make sure it caters to my needs and my preferences and the things that, you know, that I really like. And it's like, hey, you, you do realize, I mean, there's a great Marva Dawn story about this. Marva Dawn, Lutheran theologian and, and pastor, she, she said, you know, there was, um, there was this moment after church service one time where, where someone came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, I really don't like that hymn. We've been doing it a lot lately and I just really don't like it. And she said, I just patted him on the shoulder and said, that's okay. It wasn't for you. <laughs> uh, I'm pushing our time a little bit. I want to ask you one more question, though. Sure. Um, as I listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, when, you know, when we look back at these things... Um, after the fact, you know, hindsight is not 2020, of course, because we argue about history all the time. Uh, but we do have a clarity in looking at things once they are past. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you know, uh, Chuck Klosterman, this great book a number of years ago called But What If We're Wrong, where he's trying to look <laughs> yeah. at the present the way we look at the past. Oh, we can't believe people thought that the uh, earth, um, uh, the sun revolved around the earth. Right. Um, and we'll look at things right now that we believe and can't believe 400 years. People think can't believe how wrong we were. Um, for people who are in churches like Mars Hill, mm -hmm. uh, who in the moment like think that this is the place that they belong, despite the elements uh, of toxicness that we can now look back and see, um, how how would you advise people to think about communities, churches, institutions, organizations mm -hmm. they're a part of now, uh, where we want to lie to ourselves and we want to say, no, really, this is fine, yeah. when the signs are there that it's not? Yeah. Um so the shorthand answer for this is if the pastor's face is on the front page of the website, that's probably your first alarm bell. Um, and I kind of mean that. Um, but, but genuinely, one is, you know, it's this question of if, if the, again, genuinely, if the pastor gets run over by a bus, do we have a church tomorrow? Um, because there, you know, Driscoll would talk about this. Well, if I get hit by a bus, we have a strategy. All these campuses are just going to split up into other churches. And it's like, okay, that is a significant problem, right? If you've built it in this way that it can't cohere without an individual. Um, the second thing I think that's really, really critical is we have to understand, like, I'm not... I kind of think the ship has sailed on megachurches, right? So I think if you try to create this, this movement where you go, we're against the megachurch, we want to get people local, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm all for that. Like, it'd be great if it happens. Um, but I think that within, you look at, there are healthier megachurches, and you look within them, what you see are these pockets of community where people find 8, 10, 12 people or 24 people. There's a, a big church in our town um, 
like 30,000 people in it. And there's, you know, there's a Sunday school class that I've gone and taught at a few, a, a few times. It's like 75 people. These people have been together in this Sunday school class for 20, 30 years now, right? That's their church, <laughs> you know? They go to this bigger gathering afterwards, but that's their church. These are the people that show up when somebody gets sick or there's a need or whatever. Um, so I think we have to be, we have to determine to go smaller, more intimate, more local with spiritual friendships, even if they happen in the context of a big, big church. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Cosper. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.